joining us for lunch today, please make sure that you have put your $11 into the basket in the middle of the table, or $2 if you are just joining us for tea and coffee. If you have been here before, you will of course be familiar with the format, but in case you are new, here's what it will look like. We will have roughly half an hour each for the presentation, for lunch, and for questions. The session is being recorded, so choose your questions wisely. <laughs> we will wrap up at about 1.30 and you will be free to enjoy the beautiful afternoon. I am Emma. I am moderating today. I am with the Lethbridge Public Interest Research Group, one of the partner groups of the Student Speaker Challenge, which today's, present, today's presenter, Scott, recently won. Scott Huff hails from the southeastern U.S. He was born in Alabama, raised in Georgia, and most recently resides in Tennessee. He is loving Canada and he is here to study archaeology with friends and professors with whom he became associated while volunteering at the excavation of Tel Shemesh in Israel. He hopes to earn a doctorate one day through studying the ancient religious building that is being unearthed there. Despite his young age, Scott has learned that while life is not always easy to handle, other people are always introvertibly important, powerful, and wonderful part of it. So please join me in welcoming Scott. Hi. Thank you for letting me. Hi, Zach. Thank you for happy birthday. Oh, thank you. thank you for letting me speak to you today. Let me offer you two ways of valuing people instrumentally and inherently. Instrumental value is the easy one. It's the one driven by self-preservation, convenience, expectation for oneself. People are valued according to what they contribute to us. This isn't automatically a bad way of valuing people. I would contend that it's important not to take what different persons have contributed to our lives for granted. It's fair to be closer to some persons than others, such as those who have done more for us. But instrumentally valuing people is also how we may use them, objectify them, etc. Inherent value, however, is that which exists in a person regardless of how they benefit us. And it is most important to appreciate it when a person or their situation doesn't have to do with my self-preservation, my convenience, or my expectations. It appeals more to principle. Developing one's sense of the inherent value of others can be the hard way. It is quite often in this category that we also find the topic of the common good in loving those who do not necessarily love us and in giving place to people who have very little to do with us on a regular basis. I can't get into the sources of inherent value in my presentation today, but consider, don't you think it's realistic that a person has value outside of you? Yet the extent of a person's instrumental value may be where I typically stop caring. 
What about you? What about my instrumental value to others? Because doesn't it work both ways? Why shouldn't I be instrumental in the good of others' lives? One movie I really enjoy is the animated kids movie, Robots, with Robin Williams. The fluffy moral center of the movie passed between the older, wise mentor figure and the protagonist is the phrase, see a need, fill a need. I love that phrase. Isn't that awesome? What an immensely practical thing. There are many movies that we can mention with messages of good and responsibility to others and hope. The amazing Spider-Man 2, because I'm a superhero lover, the amazing Spider-Man 2 leaves the audience with the encouragement to be hope. Just be hope. To who? To who? Sorry, American English. Presumably, everyone, right? Now, why would a team of writers for this movie and countless others put forth such things? It appeals to something widespread within us. How many tug at your heartstrings, moving moments demonstrate that being good is something that we want to see alive and at work in each other, but we realize that we have to take part in that. Lethbridge is a community about which I'm still learning. I've only been in this country since September, and at that I've spent most of my time in a lab at a university. The size of this community makes us more connected with each other compared to, say, Atlanta, Georgia, near where I grew up. A professor at the university here told me that the small size of the community equals social pressure not to be a jerk. Because the person you can see at one place, you might not get away from so easily. You can see the same person in a bar or in class at one of these meetings or at the grocery store. So you're pressured to be nice. Surely there's more to Canadian niceness than that. It's legendary. But I am telling you what I'm sure the overwhelming majority of you already agree. That that minimalist kindness is so much less than we're capable of. Lethbridge is small enough and connected enough that there are lots of openings to contribute and they're easy to find. Or have you seen a person who seems socially isolated in a crowd of this size? They're bound to be those who feel alone in a room full of people. There will be so many quiet needs right here in this room. What about the women's shelter in town or the homeless shelter or Syria refugee action groups or taking someone out to coffee to ask how they're doing? or approaching a crying person with sincere personal concern and not being freaked out by their tears. Why? Why would we take those steps? Because people are worth it. They have immense inherent value and any one person's instrumental value must be weighed against much more than their instrumental value to me. I should be mindful of their potential for their good and for the good of the world. 
We do things for people if they're worth it to us. But when we dig into it, overwhelmingly, they are worth our energy, period. I can seek to get something out of it for myself, but even when I don't come away like I'd hoped, what I've given is worth it because they are. You are. This can be overwhelming. But one of the things I'm going to point you back to is that bit of practicality. If you see a need right there in front of you, aim to fill it. Let that be fundamental to the structure of your day. Now, how does that hold up when we incorporate ourselves into businesses? Here, we might turn to the illustration of protocols. I told uh, someone before this started that I used to be a computer science student. Now, one who writes code to make a working computer program is aware that he or she is dealing with something that does not have the capacity to make our lives better unless it is running on protocols, on programmer-given instructions that make it helpful. Without good code, good protocols, a running computer program can be inert, damaging to the larger system, or just really annoying to work with. We do not make benevolent gods. We make things. And when those things have running functions, when they are more complex than just tools in our hands, it is certainly up to people to see to their helpfulness. Companies, corporations, in this sense, are the same as a running computer program. At least from a common American standpoint, businesses exist to make money, and they ought to make the most money that they can for their owners. This is the thing corporations are, but they are big things, right? And we've noticed their ability to influence lives, not just with their products, but with the very fact of their operations, people's livelihoods, the environment, politics, technology, communities. As such, we are compelled to treat companies and corporations according to their ability to influence, right? We apply to these things social obligations beyond what is best for their owners. Now, the short answer of whether corporations owe more to society or their shareholders is society. A business is only justified if it and its owners operate with respect to that incontrovertible value of persons. The conflict between the thing of business and social passion, however, can make this difficult. Corporate gifts to charity. Right? Most companies claim to give money to charity. Okay, good. But if I'm the one redirecting those funds, I could ask, why am I giving away someone else's money? The shareholders want to give to charity, but we might choose a different charity than you. Why don't we just let you choose how to give your money away? Who are we to substitute your judgment for your money? I've known a few persons who, when they were sick, benefited from outfits that relied heavily on corporate donations. 
but does a corporation care about sick children? Well, presumably, the owners and employees of a given corporation would overwhelmingly care about sick children. And they may, in fact, give their money to help sick children. But there is a sense, still, in which a corporation is a thing to which we hold social obligation. And the thing isn't necessarily social in the way it operates. So when a corporation gives to support a facility or foundation or family, it is possible in many cases that what the thing is also doing is paid advertising that we're nice people, right? And that happens because we expect it. Really, it simply falls to us to continue to be good to each other. What about how much employees are paid, right? Walmart is controversial in that regard. At least it is in the States. I would imagine it is here too. The value of others would compel us to ask an individual all sorts of questions about how they are and what they need. The director of a business is expected to think in terms like, I should pay what makes the company most economically efficient. Enough so that this person doesn't quit, but not more than that. Because then, from the top position to the bottom, what I'm really doing is giving away someone else's money. Once again, I'm, we have the thought, I'm being benevolent, but it's benevolent on somebody else's dime, and that doesn't seem right. This contrast does not exist everywhere. It's popular in the States, but in the wider world, there are companies with a couple of representatives of the workers' union on the board. There are places where it's normal for corporate boards to make consensus decisions that take into account everyone's interests, including societal interests. So it can work. But in the States, at least, we've always thought it was mighty awkward and that it was simpler and more efficient in the long run to run the business as if for its own sake. It certainly is, in the short run, economically more efficient, but one may propose that a more social mindset should be required of businesses. In any case, it's in requirements that society can, at present, find power to demand from corporations. In the States, and I'm assuming it's this way in Canada, if society wants something more from a company, then society can pass a law. If society wants companies to be more environmentally wise, we can pass regulations about what you must do environmentally. And we do, right? There are all sorts of environmental regulations that regulate corporations as well as individuals. We have laws that govern worker safety, wage and hour laws, health insurance laws, retirement plan laws. And it's important for society to make its voice loud and heard to businesses. If you ask the abstract question, should companies have the obligation to do what is socially best? Well, yes, everyone does. But if society does not formally say, in the way things are currently at work, if society does not formally say 
this is what we want you to do, then when I go to a company's decision makers and say, you owe an obligation to do what is socially best, what I'm really doing, what I'm really doing is telling them that they have the right and obligation to use their personal judgment as to do as to what is best for society and act on that personal judgment of theirs with other people's property. In that situation, one can look at the books at the end of the year and tell if a company has made money, but whether or not it was righteous that year is a tougher thing to decide. That tempts people. Whether or not someone was as good as they could be to the whole wide world is really hard to determine by the books. And in practice, managers, at least some managers, will use that as a kind of loophole to do things like they themselves want. But just because I form myself into a company, if I incorporate myself, I haven't created a morality-free zone but a business is like a program in need of parameters to make it helpful. So society needs to keep going and not suffering companies to behave in destructive ways. I say with some cynicism that we should expect companies, all companies, even really bad ones, evil ones, to talk good, righteous talk. There's a reason the department is called public relations, right? It's up to us to say how corporations, how businesses should exist and operate. Because in making businesses, again, we have not made benevolent gods that will do good for us. And we should be unyielding in our demand of light from each other rather than darkness. It is still people asking, giving good from and to other people. What about an even larger move of incorporation, such as a government? How does this hold up? In many conversations that I've heard and had, governments are so big as to be intangible, right? The talk is about what the government does or is doing separate from myself. But it must not be so intangible. In any real discussion of government responsibility to others, domestically or internationally, the persistent pragmatic root of a government is, and I think the conscious basis for a government should be, how we live together. And in this sense, the question of what responsibilities a government might have to others once again becomes a question of what we owe to each other, what we acknowledge in each other, what value we see in each other. Let's consider some pragmatic numbers. Again, I can only really talk from a U.S. perspective, but the U.S. Census Bureau's report from March 2014 numbered full-time civilian state and local government employees at 14,326,103. A 
A review of the U.S. economy in a New York Times article from October 13 put the number of seasonal civilian federal employees that year at 2,723,000. That's a total of 17,049,103 people, just on record. To give you some context, Ford Motor Company advertises that it has 224,000 employees worldwide. And Ford's big, right? Walmart, also big, advertises that it has 1.4 million U.S. associates. The U.S. government, again, between federal, state, and local government civilian employees, has 17,049,103 people as of a few years ago. That is a lot of people. And the tasks and decisions of those people, including elected officials, is the de facto government of the United States. This is what one attempt to live together looks like. Canada, of course, will have a similar situation with large numbers. I would imagine that a few of you in here have or have had government jobs. My point is that robots are not making this attempt for us. We cannot inquire as to a government's responsibilities as if it were separate from us. As if it were this conscious thing to which we can attach the expectation that it will make right decisions. It is our collective attempt at living together. Us. Because a government is an order of living together, we must acknowledge also the human imperfection of such attempts. Even just looking at the number of employees in the U.S. government, one can expect imperfections. Some of these persons will have jobs created out of sheer nepotism. Some will have jobs created out of avoidance due to personal disdain by superiors. Some, there will be jobs that don't exist, that need to. There will be wasted resources across numerous departments. In the U.S., there are two main political parties who are distinguished primarily by different perspectives on how best to live with each other. The, the Republicans and the Democrats, a popular demonstration of the difference between them is bigger government, smaller government, right? The Democrats are normally associated with the idea of bigger government. Bigger government means that the citizens right. make money, give it to the government, and the government distributes money to all according to need. That sounds swell. Now, what Republicans don't like about that idea is that they are very outspoken about the idea of people abusing the system, right? People who will sign up to receive from the government that will take away from those who have greater, if we looked at their lives, would have greater and more legitimate needs. And so that's one side. The other side, the Republican Party, has the idea of smaller government, where it's like, government, keep out of my pocketbook. If, if I want to do good with my money, then it's my money to do good with. And you have other responsibilities, I grant you, but I shouldn't have to give you so much. Now, the thing is that ultimately, what could happen with that is, let's say that the government didn't take, a, didn't take hardly any of people's money does that mean 
that we would have the hearts to be giving to others in need. You see, ultimately, both ways, the Republican ideal, the Democratic ideal, both ways depend fundamentally on a moral fortitude within individual citizens. Both the Democratic ideal and the Republican ideal would work where that moral fortitude is in place, but both are corrupted and incomplete without it. Right? It just goes both ways. Because if you go with the democratic ideal, there will be people who abuse the system. And if you go with the Republican ideal, there will be people who are simply in a position to give a lot and don't. In both cases, because the concern for others is lacking. The concern to be good to others is lacking. There is no legislation, there is no societal structure that simply supplies the morality necessary for us to live together well. The presence of government, however, may yet be justified in the need for organization of those things which we deem should be distributed and spread, and spread to all, and in the representation of different viewpoints that come out in our endeavor to live together. As for international relations, a government's responsibility to represent includes representation of our desires to help others across political boundaries. But see, that desire still has to be there, doesn't it? To help others. It is responsible to be open to the sufferings of, person who, of persons whose lives are distinctly apart from mine. Governments are big, they're messy, they're as imperfect as the people who carry out the tasks and jobs that provide their de facto existence, but they are an attempt at living together, and that attempt is virtuous. There's a variety of responsibilities that a representative unit has toward a heterogeneous constituency, as well as others worldwide, but that moral attitude that we are responsible still on this scale that is both beautiful and necessary and makes room for action. That is responsible. In the end, there are many ways in which a government, a company, a person is responsible to others. But in every case, it is we who are responsible to each other. Domestically, globally, as individuals or a group. And we should respond to that as we have opportunity. See a need, fill a need. Regardless of the individual or corporate level of our coexistence, we are inherently, and in view of great potential, worth each other's energy and effort for good. Thank you.